As we start out together this morning, I have a really interesting picture that I'd like to show you. We can put that picture up. You know what that is? That's it. Somebody said that. It's fantastic. That's an Enigma machine. An Enigma machine. An Enigma machine was an advanced electromechanical cipher machine. I think I got that right. It was invented in Germany after World War I. And it was used by all the branches of the German military to encode and transmit their wireless communications throughout World War II, the Enigma machine. And one of the amazing stories of World War II is how British codebreakers at a place called Bletchley Park, there's Bletchley Park for you, it's a rather nice-looking mansion, isn't it? Well, these English codebreakers throughout the war stationed there at Bletchley Park managed to crack the Enigma code. And so they were reading the German military dispatches throughout World War II. And by being able to do that, many say they were enabled to shorten the length of World War II by as much as two years by having access to that kind of knowledge of the enemy's plans and strategies. It's one of the Amazing stories of World War II, the cracking of the Enigma Code. So why do I bring all of that up other than I'm interested in such things? Well, the reason I bring that up is because you and I are under attack every single day. We are under attack by the temptations that come at us, temptation to sin. And far too often, you and I give in to those attacks. We give in to those temptations. So what I hope to do this morning and then next week is to help us understand our enemy's plans, our enemy's strategies, to crack the enigma code, as it were, of temptation today so that we might be able to fight more successfully against temptation. So this morning I want to introduce to you this two-part message, the two-part approach to battling temptation so that we gain victory over the world, the flesh, and the devil. This week we will focus on temptation itself and its strategies. Next week we'll talk about how to overcome them. So open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 15. I'll begin you there, Matthew 15. And I want to look at part one with you. Part one, the two-part approach to battling temptation is that we must understand the source of our temptations. We need to understand the source of temptations. The word temptation itself is an ethically neutral word. An ethically neutral word. It can have the meaning of testing. The Greek word translated temptation can mean testing. In fact, it's used that way in Genesis chapter 22 and verse 1 about the testing of Abraham. It also can mean trials as it's used in James chapter 1 and verse 2. 
But the word also has the idea of enticement to disobedience to God. An enticement toward disobedience to God, which is sin. And that is the way that it is used in Matthew chapter 4, and that is the way we will use it this morning. Temptation this morning, as we look at as we look at the word, as we look at the concepts, it is an enticement toward disobedience. An enticement toward disobedience. Now, the enticement can present itself really in in one of three ways. One of three ways. It can be an internal enticement that comes from our own corrupt nature. It can be an external enticement that comes through the circumstances of the world. Or it can be what I'm calling a third-party enticement. That is a provocation of a third party. So it can be internal, generated from within us. It can be external to us. Or it can be, and I wanted to just make this as a little different segment, it can be a third-party provocation. So third-party provocation. And that just fits nicely with John's, the idea in John's epistle, which is, comes to us in the proverbial expression, the world, the flesh, and the devil, right? The world, the flesh, and the devil. So internal, external, third-party provocation. So let's look a little bit at internal enticements. Internal enticements here in Matthew chapter 15. We'll pick it up in verse 17. Jesus says in Matthew 15 verse 17, Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and it is those that defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. By the way, that's just a representative list. Okay, that's not an extensive or all-inclusive list, a representative list. These are the things which defile the man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. Jesus here identifies the, the real source of our corruption. The source of our corruption. It's, it's not something we do, but it is something we are. It is not something we do, it is something we are. That is, we are sinners in rebellion against our Creator. And that is the source of this internal corruption. David writes in Psalm 51 and verse 5, In sin my mother conceived me. In sin my mother conceived me. We are born sinners. There is an internal corruption that comes to every single human being conceived as a fallen child of Adam. Now for the unbeliever, this enslavement to sin, this internal corruption is absolutely complete. Absolutely complete. Romans chapter 8, verse 7, Paul speaks of it. He says, The mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, and this is the key expression, for it is not even able to do so. It is not able to do so. There is a total corruption within fallen human nature. 
But for those of us who have become united to Jesus Christ by faith, then our wills are no longer irresistibly enslaved to that corruption. Key point, right? Key point. Second Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. For those who are in Christ, they are a what? They are a new creation. Romans chapter 6 and verse 6, Paul says that we are dead to sin. We are no longer slaves to sin. That is that we no longer have to obey its lusts. So we are no longer irresistibly enslaved to sin. If you are in Jesus Christ this morning, that slavery has been broken. But the pull of that corruption remains very, very strong, doesn't it? The pull of that corruption is strong, it is powerful, and it must be understood in order to be combated. And to do that, understanding this internal pull, I'm going to turn you to James chapter 1. To James chapter 1. Looking at verses 14 and 15. James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. According to James, this internal corruption that no longer enslaves us yet remains very powerful within us perverts our desires, perverts our desires and draws us into sin. This is the internal temptations that you and I experience. Verse 14. But each one, James says, is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. James uses some very vivid language here for us, isn't he? He actually uses language that is drawn for the realm of fishing. A lot of fishing terminology here in these couple of verses. And he also speaks from the realm of childbirth. And he combines these two natural realms in order to give us an understanding of the very power of temptation and the inevitability of sin once we give in to this internal temptation. Now, when we went through James back at the beginning of this year, January, we spent a fair amount of time working through these verses. And so I'm not going to do that again with you. We're going to move through this pretty quickly, but I'm doing it to remind you of that internal pull. If you're looking for a more extensive examination of these verses, you can go back and pick that up off the website. But let us just follow James' flow of thought here in verses 14 and 15. He begins and he says, but each one is tempted when they are carried away. Each one is tempted when they are carried away. A fishing metaphor. Each one is tempted when they are drawn, when they are lured, when they are carried away by their own desires, James says. It's the idea of drawing a fish out of hiding. It's hiding under a log along the edge of the stream and it is being drawn out from its protective cover. Here's how it works. A person allows their desires to come out from under their disciplined thought. Once those desires are drawn out from under the discipline, then they become undisciplined desires 
or lusts. So once the disciplined thoughts are drawn out into, into an undisciplined state, they become desires, undisciplined desires or, or lusts. It's like letting a tiger out of the cage. Once you open the cage door and you let the tiger out, there's no way to stuff him back in. So the secret, of course, is to keep the cage door closed. It is to keep our thoughts disciplined. Keep them disciplined. Because once they are out, once they have been drawn out of the safety, once they have come out under disciplined control, then the process has begun. And James points out to us it is an inevitable result that this process sets in motion. He says again, verse 14, that they are enticed by their own lust. They are beguiled. We become beguiled with our own lust. We, we become allured by our own lust. We, we swallow the bait, as it were, of our own lusts. Once those desires lose the boundary of self-control, then they inevitably draw us out and beguile us. They confuse us. They confuse us. It's really an interesting thought when you think about that. It is the imagined pleasures of sin that dazzle the mind. They dazzle the mind. They, they capture our attention. They, they promise a reward that makes us willing to risk all the consequences that we know will come as a result. At that point in time, we are like a helpless fish in which a worm is hanging in front of it. It it cannot help itself. There's a hook in the worm. The fish, as it were, knows there's a hook in the worm, and yet the worm is so delightful to its eyes that it cannot help itself. It swallows the hook and the worm. The same thing happens to you and I. The same thing. um, Here it is. I think this works at least. The imagined pleasures of arriving someplace on time or early beguile us, dazzle our thinking into being willing to step on the accelerator and exceed the speed limit. Even though we know the consequences of exceeding the speed limit are painful. Or maybe put another way, it, it dazzles us, it beguiles us into being willing to go across that solid line that separates the carpool lane from all the rest of the lanes. And so in traffic, somebody who is late, right, what will they do? It's so predictable. It is so predictable. They become beguiled, they become dazzled, they become captured by the supposed pleasure of getting there a little bit earlier that they're willing to risk the $371 fine. Okay, none of you I know would do that, but I've heard some people would do that. Now, James goes on to say, when the lust has conceived, there's a conception. Now, he's, he's kind of moving metaphors from fishing over to childbirth. When the lust has conceived, that is when the object of the lust and the impulses furnished by the lust come together Come together, there is conception. There is an act of conception. There's an act of conception at that point in time. And that conception, James goes on to say, gives birth to sin. Verse 15. A sin baby is born, if we can say it that way. A sin baby is born. It's inevitable. When the object of the lust and when the the impulse furnished by the lust come together, a sin baby comes into the world. 
Even when we later repent and are forgiven for the sin that we have committed, the sin baby still exists. The the sin baby doesn't go out of existence at that point in time. The sin baby continues to exist. In fact, there's an expression that is that old sins cast long shadows. And many carry around with them the consequences of prior sinful behavior. They have repented. They have been forgiven in Christ. They've even been forgiven by others. And yet there are still sin babies that follow them around. James goes on to say, when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. When it's accomplished, it brings forth death. That is, that when it's fully grown, it brings forth death. Sin can be indulged in for a long period of time. Sometimes, apparently without any consequences, but the final result, the final mathematics of this process, according to the Word of God, is death. Romans 6 and verse 23, the wages of sin is death. It is a divine economy. The wages of sin is death. So there is this temptation, there is this enticement that that proceeds from the inside out, this internal enticement to sin. And we need to understand the process in order to be able to do battle with it. And the process begins way back in verse 14 when we first begin to think. When we first begin to think about things, that's the time to box it off, to discipline ourselves and not allow those thoughts to become undisciplined. Because once that process begins, once the fish is drawn out from under the log, it is only a matter of time until death results. Internal temptations. Secondly, externally. Externally. Temptation comes at us. Our enemy comes at us with, the, with external strategies as well. The internal and the external. So temptation comes to us externally in ways as varied as the world itself. That's helpful to know, Right? It comes at us externally in ways as varied as the world itself. All that our bodies touch, all that our tongues taste, all that our nose smells, all that our eyes see, all that our ears hear present opportunity for us to respond sinfully. That about covers it, doesn't it? You can cover your ears and you still got eyes. You cover the eyes and you got a nose. You cover the nose, you got a mouth. You cover all of that and you can still rump up against things. It comes at us externally in every single direction, every one of our senses. Every one of our senses. The Apostle John sums this up very well, and I'll turn you there to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. Verses 15 and 16. He sums up these external enticements. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Apostle John says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world. Now notice John uses a very inclusive term here. 
all. He's intentionally summarizing every one of these possible avenues of temptation. He's pulling them all together and he's, he's going to slot them into three basic boxes. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. That summarizes well the external temptations to sin, the external enticements. They are the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. The word lust, epithemia, it means a a strong desire or a craving. A strong desire or a craving, and it can be a good or bad desire or craving. The word itself, again, is neutral. It's used very positively in Philippians chapter 1, verse 23, when Paul desires, Paul craves to depart and be with Christ, he says. So that would be a use of it in a positive way. But its predominant New Testament use is very decidedly evil and negative. And thus the word is frequently translated lust. Translated lust. John says the lust of the flesh. The lust of the flesh. Again, this word can have a neutral sense. The word in the Greek can have a neutral sense, and that is that it's all that's, that's possible in terms of human wants or needs or desires. That is our bodily needs, desires, and wants. That is a neutral way to look at that word. Or it can have a more decidedly negative idea. A more decidedly negative idea. It's it's translated that way in the NIV. It's called the cravings of sinful man. So the NIV takes a very decidedly negative view of this. I'm inclined actually to see it as more neutral here. I'm actually inclined to see the lust of the flesh here, the desires of the flesh, the cravings of the flesh as a little more neutral. That is until they are acted upon by the internal corruption. And I think that's that's important for us is, is to recognize the fact that all that is in the, the things that we see out there are not inherently evil. It's how we respond to them. It's how we respond to them. This way, this is how we need to think about it. Temptation arises from natural and innocent afflictions or passions of our bodies and our minds. That is, we are, in, we are troubled. We are, we are grief-stricken. We are sorrow, sorrowful. Or we are hungry, or we are thirsty, or, or we are weary, or we are in pain. These are neutral things that come to us. It's what we do with that that, that turns it decidedly evil. When our hunger is acted upon, when our thirst, our weariness, our pain, our our trouble, our grief, our sorrow, and so forth is acted upon by our corrupt nature, then they become internal lusts that drive the engine of sin. So that which can be neutral can become decidedly evil when we, depending how we interact with it. Lust of the flesh. John also talks about the lust of the eyes. The lust of the eyes. Now, this is really interesting. Because God has given us eyes, hasn't he? 
And he's given us eyes for a, a purpose. He's given us an amazing ability to see and enjoy a diverse world that he has created, hasn't he? I mean, God could have made this world exceedingly bland. The whole world could be in black and white. But God has given us a, a vivid world. God also created Adam and he placed him in a spectacular garden. And there in that garden, he, he told him to keep that garden, to tend that garden, and to enjoy that garden. Genesis chapter 2, verse 9. And God has given us acceptable ways to, to enjoy the creation around us. He's given us the ability to possess the creation, at least at a certain level. The very things our eyes have seen, God has given us the ability to possess. It's interesting, the 10th commandment, the 10th commandment, the prohibition against coveting, right? The 10th commandment doesn't prohibit the desire to acquire something. What the 10th commandment prohibits is the uncontrolled desire to acquire something. Something that God has not permitted us to have. Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, the 10th commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. It doesn't say you may not have a house. What it says is you cannot covet your neighbor's house. That is that you cannot have an uncontrolled desire to have a house. You can indeed have a summer home. You can have all the things that your eyes can see within lawful boundaries. But what you cannot have is that which belongs to your neighbor. The temptation arises when we see those things that, that are uh, with our eyes and, th and then we desire them when they're not lawfully permitted to us. Can't help but think here about Jesus' temptations, right, in Matthew 4. It was certainly lawful to feed himself. The temptation was for Jesus to step out from under his role as, as in subordination to the Father as the Messiah, and that is to exercise his, his power outside of his divine boundaries and to turn those stones into bread to feed himself. But there was nothing wrong with the bread and there was nothing wrong with eating. It's what we do with it. It's when it's inflamed by our corruption. Maybe I can illustrate this uh, for you. I'll turn you to uh, Joshua chapter 7. Joshua chapter 7 and verse 20. Joshua 7 and verse 20. You'll remember this. This uh, event occurs, the destruction of Jericho, as the nation is coming into the land. And God had said that everything inside the walls of Jericho was to be destroyed. It was to be destroyed. But this, this young man, Achan, he, he didn't want to destroy everything. He, he saw something that he desired. And so he took it. He took it. There was sin in the camp and consequences of sin. And, and through a, a divinely guided process, they ferreted it out, right? 
And so Joshua says to Achan, verse 19, My son, I implore you, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel. Give praise to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Confess your sin. Keep nothing back. So Achan answered Joshua, verse 20, and he said, Truly, I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle from Shinar, that is a a robe made in Babylon, and 200 shekels of silver, that's about 80 ounces of silver, and a bar of gold, 50 shekels in weight, that's about 20 ounces of gold, then I coveted them and took them, and behold... They are concealed in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath it. Now, is it wrong to to desire to have gold? The answer is no. Is it wrong to desire to have silver? The answer is no. What is wrong is to desire these external things when they have been forbidden to you. When they have been forbidden to you. At that point in time, it is wrong And thus that external thing that comes in through the eye gates becomes the temptation that when combined with our internal greed becomes the enticement of sin. All that the eye sees, back to 1 John, 1 John 2, all that the eye sees, everywhere we look, everywhere we look, can, when it's undisciplined, become an enticement to sin. Third, John says, the boastful pride of life. The third category of external enticements, the boastful pride of life. This category refers essentially to to one's attitude in relation to your possessions or your achievements. It's talking about the attitude that you have with regard to your your possessions or your achievements, the desire to be exalted, the the desire to be well thought of. It's, it's It's the pride of life when we define ourselves in terms of our accomplishments. When we, when we introduce ourselves and we, and we work out in the conversation the number of degrees that we hold, right? Hi, my name is, is David and I hold a master's degree and, you know, we wouldn't be that crude, but we would figure out a way to slide it in, right? You know what they say, by the way, 32 degrees equals freezing, right? I don't know why I said that, but it does. <laughs> it does. The pride of life is is capturing us when we are concerned about how others view us and thus we, we define ourselves in terms of our accomplishments or our material possessions or achievements. It can even manifest itself in, in terms of our, our own religious standings. It's boasting in self rather than God is the idea. One commentator spoke about this. He said, we can have sinful desires when we are alone, but we cannot be ostentatious without company. I thought that was pretty good. You can't be ostentatious when there's nobody around to see. So this this aspect of the world, that is, those that are out there in the world, can be a temptation to us when we want to be thought well of by them. And so we define ourselves by our achievements. Now, you can't help but think 
in John's triad of enticements here with the parallels between the temptation of Eve and the temptation of Christ, right? And so I create a little chart here for you. We'll put this little chart up there. There you go. Little chart to kind of see how when John is writing this, he is he is reflecting upon these realities. This is what's behind his thinking. So we have the flesh, right? We have the uh, the lust of the flesh there in Genesis chapter three verse six. Eve looks at the fruit and it's good for food. It's good for food. Luke chapter four, by the way, and I put Luke's. Uh, account of the temptation up here because Luke rearranges the temptations number two and number three. He actually, from what Matthew has, he puts them in a reverse order. So Luke lists them one, three, and two. And I believe Luke does that, by the way, so that it fits this nice little, um, uh, this, this little pattern that is first laid out in Genesis. So you see, for Christ, the the temptation that Satan comes at him with is bread, right? Then we see the, the lust of the eyes. And so for Eve, it was pleasant to the eyes. She looked at the fruit. It was pleasant to the eyes. The approach to Jesus is, I'll give you all the glory of these kingdoms. Finally, the pride of life. For Eve, it's the desire to be wise like God. And the approach that Satan took with Jesus was throw yourself off the temple so that everybody will see in a spectacular way that you really are Messiah. So the evil one came at both of them in this similar pattern. These are the enticements of the world, according to John. The world that lies in the power of the evil one. First John five nineteen. So we have the internal enticement to sin, which is our own corrupt nature. We have the external enticements to sin, which is basically though anything we see, touch, taste, smell, hear, etc. It's coming at you. And if that weren't enough, we have the third-party enticements. We have the third-party enticement. That's the final category, third-party temptations, third-party enticements. If it were not enough that it was just your own internal corrupt nature that, that you have trouble keeping under control of the Spirit, if it were not enough that it was all these things in the world that, that can become that point that draws you in, there is a person who is actively opposed to you and seeking your undoing. It is the third party. Specifically, it is Satan and his demonic realm. Satan, the adversary... The devil, that is, the, the slanderer or the accuser, the one who desires the destruction of God's people. Peter says that the, the devil is out to get you. Did you know that? He is out to get you. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Seeking someone to devour. There is an active, evil person and personages in this world that is out to seek your undoing. Out to seek your undoing. Now, his attacks are, are not so much upon just ruining you as an individual. This is an important point. They are not so much just to ruin you as an individual as they are to, to ruin the work of God, of which you are a part. 
His attacks are, are essentially designed to destroy the local church. It is the local church that is the, the ultimate target that he is after. To bring down one believer is not big enough. It is to bring down a believer who by that believer's fall will bring down a church. That's what he's after. That's what he's after. Turn back to the left to Ephesians chapter 6. Let me see if in the time remains I can show this to you. Ephesians chapter 6. And we're just sketching these things, by the way. We're just sketching these things. Every one of these areas could certainly take more focused time and exposition. But Ephesians 6, verses 11 and 12. Now, the context of the Ephesian epistle is the church in all its glory. This is the epistle about the church and all its glory. In chapter 1, the church, Paul tells us, is brought into existence by the sovereign will and plan of God. Church is brought into existence according to the sovereign plan, will, and calling of God. In chapter 2, Paul tells us that the church is, is formed out from those who have experienced salvation by grace through faith, right? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Exactly. This is the church. Chapter 3, Paul goes on to explain that the church has a unique position in redemptive history. That the church is a very unique thing that God is doing in redemptive history. Never before seen in the Old Testament. And then, in, beginning in chapter 4 and 5, Paul talks about the unity of this new entity called the church. He talks about its unity and he talks about its holiness. And, and he talks about these things because they are the demonstrations of Christ's saving work. Demonstration of Christ's saving work. The church is Christ's body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Ephesians 1, verse 23. Now, this is the point. Jesus Christ has invested everything in the church. You understand that? He has held nothing back. He has, he has put it all on the line, as it were, for his church. And so Satan and his demons are determined to try and destroy that for which Christ has died. That is the, that is the source, or, or rather the focal point, of, that, of their attacks. So when they attack an individual, it is not an individual as they stand alone. It is an individual in community with a local body. Now let's take a look here at verses 11 and 12. And let's see if we can understand something about how this third-party attack comes. Paul says... Put on the full armor of God, verse 11, that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. We can see something of the enemy's plans. We can read their enigma code. It's deciphered for us here. 
Paul tells us, verse 11, that Satan is scheming. He is scheming. End of the verse, you see it? Verse 11. The schemes of the devil. It is a scheme. The, the word carries the idea of being deceitful or being deceptive or being crafty. So that which he is doing, he's not straightforward with it. He's coming around the corner. He's trying to flank you. He's trying to sneak up behind you. He's trying to, to lay in wait for you. He's scheming. He's deceptive. He's deceitful in his attacks. Now, this, this deception can manifest itself in many ways. It, it can manifest itself through false teaching. It can be false teaching. That which on the surface appears to be true to the Scriptures, but in reality is, is just slightly deviated to draw away the people of God. You see that in Galatians. Paul attacks that false teaching in Galatians. And he attacks it for, for what it really is, and that is a, a demonic teaching that will draw away the people of God kill the church so it can be false teaching it can be counterfeit miracles as you read through the new testament there are there are these periods of miracles and satan is seeking to counterfeit them seeking to counterfeit them so it can be counterfeit miracles it can be persuasive speakers people who who just have the gift of gab they draw disciples after themselves it can be the deceptive practice of, of sowing false believers or what the Bible calls tares among the wheat. Within a local congregation, those that really do not know Jesus Christ, but, but if they are there within the congregation to destroy it. Knowingly, perhaps, or even unknowingly. So he's a scheming person. Secondly, he is violent. He's violent. You remember Jesus said that he is a murderer, right? He's been a murderer from the beginning. He is violent, verse 12. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, he says. That word struggle, the idea behind that word is, is the idea of hand-to-hand combat. It comes from the realm of Greek wrestling, where it was a, it was a wrestling to, to the bitter end. He's a violent adversary. Violent adversary. Beyond that, he is organized. He is deceitful. He is violent. He is organized. Verse 12, right? Against rulers, against powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Paul kind of lays out for us uh, this idea of a ranking within the demonic realm. There's a hierarchy there. It's not, the conflict is not haphazard. He is marshalling his forces. And he is, and he is attacking according to a, a scheme, a plan. He's ready for a sustained conflict. He's organized. And he's wicked. You see it there at the end of verse 12. He is wicked. That is that he is opposed to all that is good, all that is righteous, all that is holy, all that is wholesome. He's opposed. He'll use any means at his disposal to disrupt the unity of the church and, and consequently the effectiveness of the local church. He's playing for keeps. He is playing for keeps. We face a very strong and powerful 
adversary, Paul says. By the way, in the words of uh, James again, one of the biggest ways that the, the devil seeks to tempt believers into the destruction of the local church is through the sin of theirs, their mouth, right? Sins of the tongue. Sins of the tongue. If he can incite us to sin with our tongue against one another, then he has gone a long way towards destroying the unity of the local body. And when the unity of the local body has been destroyed, then its effectiveness, its power, its ability to push the gospel out has been severely hampered. Paul says it this way, Galatians 5 and verse 15, if you bite and devour one another, take care lest you be consumed by one another, right? We face a powerful adversary. Now, this could be pretty discouraging right about now, don't you think? Internal corruption, external temptation everywhere you look, and when you close your eyes, everywhere you hear, every smell you smell. And then you have a powerful adversary who is who's not passive, but is actively seeking to destroy. It can be very discouraging. Enemies within and enemies without, right? And more than our more than our share of failures along the way. So it's it's right here. Right here, right now. This is where the gospel comes into play. This is where the gospel comes into play. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the, come on, what is it? It is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. It is the power of God. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. See, left to our own devices, we don't have a chance. We don't have a chance. You are not going to fight off the corruption internally if you are not walking in the Spirit. You are not going to be able to resist the allure of the world unless the power of God is operating in you. You are not going to be able to stand firm against the evil one unless you put on the full armor of God in Christ Jesus. We need the gospel. It is our only hope. It is our only solution. We must believe it. We must believe it. And we must believe it all the time. All the time. Next week, we'll look at some some specific strategies to combating the internal, external, and third-party temptations. But this week, this is what I want you to do this week. This week, I want you to, to rehearse to yourself the gospel. I want you to take a few minutes this week and and I want you to just go through either out loud with with someone else or or at least in your mind, I want you to go through the gospel. I want you to repeat it to yourself so that you remind yourself of the power of God. Power of God. Because it is the power of God released in the gospel as we believe it that saves us not just once at a point in time, but saves us every moment of every day. There is no way to overcome temptation outside of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is our only hope. Do you believe the gospel? Do you believe the gospel? And are you relying on it? Are you relying on it to live your Christian life? Some here probably 
don't know the gospel. They don't really know what it is we're talking about. Their lives are, are characterized by constant failure. They're like a, like a rotted fence post. When, when temptation comes, it doesn't take much at all before it just snaps off and bends over. If you find yourself in that position, if you find yourself unable or unwilling to battle sin, then I pray that you would come and let me, let me open the Scriptures with you after this service. Let me, let me talk to you about the Gospel of Jesus Christ. For it alone is the power of God. It can deliver your soul. It will deliver your soul. Let's pray. Our Father, our enemy is powerful. The corruption within our own heart is strong and deceitful. The allure of this world is everywhere apparent. Enemies within and enemies without. Our Father, we have been reminded this morning of how serious the fight is. How there is not a moment in which we can relax. There is no behind the lines, as it were. No place to go on furlough. No R&R. For, Lord, we carry the fight with us wherever we go. And thus we need Christ. We need the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ to be released into our lives at every moment. You've told us, our Father, in your word that it is by believing this gospel truth that that power is released. May you even now just strengthen our belief. Banish the doubts, O Lord. Draw our hearts upward after Christ. It's in his name we pray. God bless you this morning for coming. And if you are new with us this morning, I want to add my greetings to you and remind you that we have a lunch available for you in the Fountain Cafe immediately following the service. You might make your way out through this door here and, and over to the Connection Corner where we have some information we would love to give you. God bless you. Thanks for coming.